Well, if you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and we'll be in verses 22 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 42. You guys know how I love to think about structure within uh, the scriptures, if only because it just reveals the beauty of them. So can we talk a little bit about the beauty of John's structure? Uh, As we close out John chapter 10, we're also closing out the first uh, major section of John's gospel that runs from the middle of chapter 1, verse 19 there, to the end of this chapter, chapter 10. It's a section that a lot of people refer to as the book of signs because of the way that it is structured around six key signs that Jesus performs, uh, turning the water into wine at Cana, healing a man's son from a great distance, healing a lame man, um, feeding more than 5,000 people, walking on water, and finally, most recently, healing a man that had been born blind. Jesus is still going to perform the greatest sign of the book, other than his own resurrection, which is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's coming up in the next chapter. But chapters 11 and 12 seem to serve more as a transition into the Passion Week that's found in chapters 13 through 20, where John describes the last words of Jesus to his followers as well as Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. So a compelling reason actually to see chapter 10 as the close of this first section of John's gospel is found at the end of the chapter when we're told that Jesus returns to the place where John had first baptized, John the Baptist. So we find that we're in the exact same location that we were in John chapter 1, verse 19, as we are in John chapter 10, verse 42. So these two locations, the same location, form a bookend here in John's gospel. Not only that, but the Jewish leaders came to John asking him, who are you? Are, the, are you the Messiah? And here in chapter 10, they come with the exact same question to Jesus. John very clearly says, no, I'm not the Messiah. But as we close out this section, Jesus is very clear. He says, I am the Messiah. I'm the son of God. You need to believe in me to find life. This section, John 10, 22 through 42, actually seems to be the culminating interaction between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. It's as if they have one final chance to go down the path of belief in Jesus before they seal their fate and walk down the road that would lead to them rejecting him and killing him. And so all of the words and all of the works of John 1 to 10 surround this interaction and it's like they they shout out for these men to finally believe who Jesus says he is. That's John's entire gospel though, right? John's entire gospel is a voice shouting us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. John is written so that we would believe in Jesus and find life in him. And having seen and heard who Jesus is in this gospel, we might wonder why would anyone reject him? as Savior. But we also know that apart from God's grace, we all too would reject Jesus and his testimony about himself. So God's word graciously says to us and to all who would hear, listen to the voice of Jesus. Listen to the voice of Jesus, the shepherd who offers everlasting life in eternal safety in his fold. That's our big idea for this afternoon. Listen to the voice of Jesus Jesus, the shepherd who offers everlasting life and eternal safety in his fold. There's a call to listen here. 
but there is also a description of what Christ offers to those who hear his voice and respond in faith. So we not only hear the invitation to believe in Jesus, but we are comforted by the blessings that come to those who hear and respond to the voice of Jesus with faith. Blessings of, of everlasting life and eternal safety in his fold. And he pleads with all people, including those like the Pharisees who have rejected him over and over again, asking that they would find life in him. And so too, his word pleads with us today and says, listen, listen to the voice of Jesus, the shepherd who offers everlasting salvation and eternal safety in his fold. Let's read John 10, beginning in verse 22. Hear these words. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Or some translate, How long will you annoy us? <laughs> if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Uh, verses 22 and 23 set the scene for this conversation. We've moved away from the, the Feast of Tabernacles that had been in the background since chapter 7, as well as the immediate context of the, the healing of the man that had been born blind. It's now about three months later, give or take, and the Feast of Dedication is being celebrated. Uh, unlike the Feast of Tabernacles, this feast is not one that you're going to find described in the Old Testament. In fact, it was only about 200 years old at this time. It's a bit like our own American Independence Day, which is going to be just 250 years old in a few years. Um, Carson, D.A. Carson, the commentator, describes the background of this joyful and triumphant festival like this. So here's the historical reason for the, the, the Feast of Dedication. In 167 BC, 
the Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and polluted the temple, setting up a pagan altar to displace the altar of Israel's God. Chafing under the, the brutal repression under which possession of any part of the Hebrew scriptures was a capital offense, many Jews revolted and developed the fine art of guerrilla warfare. Eventually, they grew strong enough to overthrow the oppressor, and under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, they recaptured the temple and reconstituted it to God on the 25th of Kislev, 164 BC, which is around December. The people celebrated the rededication of the temple for eight days, and it was decreed that a similar eight-day feast of dedication, Hanukkah, should be held every year. So this feast of dedication is what we commonly know as the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, that occurs in late November or mid to early December, which meant, as John says it, it was winter. This was probably why the conversation occurred in what's called Solomon's Colonnade, which would have provided some shelter from the wind and the, and the cold. Jesus was walking there, and the Jews gather around him. As you read it, it, it kind of feels like an ambush, doesn't it? They, they sort of encircle him, and they begin asking him questions about just who he is. You can see them all there, warmly dressed in some way from the cold, and they surround Jesus and the coldness of, of the day is mirrored by the coldness of their attitude towards Christ. They had a purpose in their trap. They wanted to corner Jesus and get him to clearly and plainly admit that he was claiming to be the Messiah. Examining their questions and their interactions with Jesus might help us as we interact with others regarding who Jesus is. A few principles then about that as we understand their attitude. Notice the first principle is that some interest in Jesus is not genuine. Some interest in Jesus is not genuine. As we come across people who say they're interested in Jesus, sometimes they really aren't. Uh, if this was our first interaction with the Pharisees, we might hear their question as one from true seekers, a question that, that came from those that were on the cusp, of, the cusp of belief who just wanted to know for sure who Jesus was. But the reality would seem to be that they were simply looking for a clear public declaration from Jesus that he was the Messiah, not so that they could believe in him, but so that they could arrest him. Even today, there are those who want to speak with us about faith and the person of Jesus just so they can find ways to make us look foolish. Uh, they have arguments and contradictions that are ready to go in, their, in our discussions because they're not really interested in Jesus or the gospel at all. They just want to find some form of satisfaction in proving their own points and asserting that they are wise and we are fools. They're like that kid in class who would raise his hand to ask a question, and when he does that, he stops listening to what the teacher's saying, and while his hand's in the air, the teacher answers the question that he has, but he didn't hear that because his hand was in the air and therefore his, his ears were closed. You ever experienced that? I've been that kid. Uh, in such circumstances like this, though, the best we can do is to tell people who Jesus is and what the gospel announces, but at some point, we have to realize that their apparent interest in Jesus is not really genuine. They don't have ears to hear. They have ears to argue. These leaders also help us to see that some reasons for rejecting Jesus are ridiculous. Some reasons that people have for rejecting Jesus are ridiculous. 
I say that because given all that these individuals had seen from Jesus, it really is ridiculous that they would still reject him. What more could they ask from him to prove who he was? It would seem that they simply wanted him to say the words, I am the Messiah, and then they would believe, right? So why doesn't Jesus just give them what they wanted? Why, why doesn't he clearly say, I am the Messiah? Well, it would seem in part because that term meant something completely different to them. Consider the feast that they're celebrating, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. It's centered around the figure of Judas Maccabeus, which could also be stated as Judas the Hammer. Uh, Judas, he was a, a strong military leader who had confronted those who were occupying Jerusalem with physical force and defeated them. And surely, when that's going on, many people thought, this guy's the Messiah, because that, that strong military leader, that's what they wanted, that's what they expected in a Messiah. So for Jesus to say he was the Messiah would be for them to see him as another Judas the Hammer. But his mission wasn't to destroy others. His mission was to die. And while he could have tried to explain that to them, even his disciples didn't get that, the concept of a sacrificial savior, savior, no matter how often he explained it to them. Nobody understood who he was. He could have said things plainly, but it, it didn't really matter. And not only would calling himself the Messiah give the Jewish people the wrong idea about him, but it would do the same thing for the Romans. It would get him killed a lot faster. They would assume that he was looking to organize the Jewish people to overthrow their rule. And so what it, the reason Jesus doesn't just plainly say, I am the Messiah, is because he has nothing to gain and everything to lose by, by doing that. There's no real reason for him to announce to them plainly that he was the Messiah, because as the passage unfolds, we find that it wouldn't really have mattered anyways. They would not have believed him no matter what he said. Sometimes there's people, maybe even someone here today, you say things like, if God would do X, Y, Z, then I would believe. There's some specific action or, or miracle that a person wants, some piece of information that they're looking for. But in the quest for that one thing, they ignore the mountain of evidence of who Jesus is and the power of the gospel that's displayed before their eyes. I think as we talk to people, a good question for such individuals or even for some of us here today could be, what more do you want? What more do you want from Jesus? What more do you want from the scriptures? To be frank, the reasons that people have for rejecting Jesus are ridiculous. He's made it so clear. He's made it so clear who he is without that even without that one thing that you are asking for. In fact, just as Jesus stating plainly that he was the Messiah could have backfired and led into misunderstanding, so too Jesus giving you exactly what you're looking for, or your friend exactly what they're looking for, could distort the truth of who he is and what faith in him looks like. So the question is, what do you want that he has not given? Don't reject Jesus based on what he hasn't said or done. Believe him for what he has. Jesus responds to the Jews by saying that he had told them exactly who he was, actually. He may not have spoken the specific words that they wanted, but the words he did speak, coupled with his actions, made it clear who he was, who he was and who he was claiming to be. And here we find him focusing on two overlapping identities. Uh, it's the identity of Messiah and Son of God. 
I think these are overlapping. I think they're the two identities because that's what John talks about in, in chapter 20. You remember he says, I wrote these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. And I think that those are the two identities that Jesus is focusing in on here. Let's think about Messiah first. Uh, Jesus' first response to the pointed request of the Pharisees is to say, I've already done what you're asking me to do. He, he points to his words and his works, his words and his works, and he reminds them that he had, he had told them that he was from the Father and that he had done works in his Father's name. But neither of these things convinced them. They still did not believe. Why? This is, I think, where the passage gets really hard. Because Jesus plainly says in verse 26 that they do not believe because they are not his sheep. Do you see that? Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I think that's a hard saying because it forces us to look at this mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's a statement that reveals this tension between the fact that God has chosen his sheep before the foundation of the world, and at the same time, all people are responsible for responding in faith to the gospel call. Jesus calls all people to believe in him, and the opportunity for all people to trust in him, in him is real, and yet, at the same time, he knows who will accept him and who will reject him. He knows those who are his sheep. If that's difficult for you, it's difficult for me. <laughs> it's difficult for a lot of people. It's hard to understand. And yet in the end of our wrestling, the question we eventually must come to is, will I believe? Will you trust Jesus as Messiah, as Savior? If you reject his, his word and, and his works, then you are not his sheep, he says. But if you receive them, if you hear his voice and you follow him, then you are his sheep. And for all who listen to him, we find the blessings of being in his flock. I think we see some of those blessings here, the blessings of being in the flock of the Messiah. We'll call them intimate relationship, eternal life, and divine security. Let's think about intimate relationship. I take that from those words there where he says, um, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. As I think about a shepherd and his sheep and, and that job, I, I started thinking about this. I don't know why it came into my mind, but I was thinking about the wife of the shepherd. And I imagine the wife of the shepherd, probably not one, but many wives of shepherds throughout history have said something like this. I feel like you love those sheep more than you love me. And I think about that because the relationship between a shepherd and, and his sheep is so close. He calls them by name. He knows them all. He protects and he provides for them. He walks with them all hours of the day. There's a deep relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. And so there's a deep relationship between us and our Savior. We hear him. He knows us. We follow him wherever he leads. He holds us close to him. All of this reminds us that our salvation is not fire insurance. Our salvation is not some small part of our lives. Rather, 
it leads us into an intimate relationship where Jesus is near to us and, and we follow after him. It's a taste of Eden and a foretaste of the new kingdom. And it's available to us now. As I look at the depth of the relationship described here, I'd ask you and I'd ask myself, have we wandered away? Has our relationship with our shepherd in some ways grown distant? And if that's true, I would invite you to return to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls who longs to be near to you and to bless you. Intimate relationship. A second blessing we find here is eternal life. Eternal life. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Life. It's a theme in John's gospel as he seeks to answer that question, what is the life that Jesus is offering to us? We found that this life offered to us is described as, as living water, as, as the bread of life, as the light of life, and even as the rich and satisfying pastures that the good shepherd leads us into. Jesus longs to give us what our hearts long for most, and ultimately what our hearts long for most is found only in him. And once we find it in him, we know that it will be found in him for the rest of time. To come to Jesus is to find life everlasting. It's to find the eternal joy of the presence of God that we have been made for and that we will enjoy for all eternity. Now the problem with a gift like that is there's this threat that the problem with any great gift is there's this threat that it will end or that it will be taken away. My family is getting ready to leave for a trip uh, this coming Saturday. And there's always a couple threats to a vacation. One is that something's going to happen to keep us from going. Something's going to take it away from us. And then when you finally get on the trip, there's another threat. It's going to (laughs) end. Once you finally get there, you know that vacation's going to be over at some point. And then when you find, the, but, but Jesus is clear that, that his gift of eternal life is one that no one can take from us. And so he emphasizes our eternal life by telling us that we will never perish. Brothers and sisters, we will never perish. Oh, we will die. <laughs> but death will not have the final victory over us. Because Jesus in his death and his resurrection claimed victory over death. And he will show us clearly in the next chapter that he truly is the resurrection and the life. So we know that this gift will never end. It's, it's eternal. It's everlasting life. But could it be taken from us? Could someone rob it from us? No. Because the good shepherd gives us this third blessing and it's divine security. Divine security. The illustration of the, of the shepherd earlier in this chapter talked about thieves and robbers and wolves. But Jesus says that as he, if he is our shepherd, we are safe. And it's not that no one can take eternal life from us, but rather that no one can take us out of the hands of the Father and of Jesus the Savior. Because to be in Jesus is to have eternal life. So to be away from Jesus is to not have eternal life. And so he says, not that no one can take eternal life from us, but that no one can take us away from him. We are in his hand. 
Notice here Jesus speaks of a deep theological truth, namely the, the Trinity. But he speaks about it to describe just how safe we are as his sheep. His deep theology is deeply practical. He says that we are in his hand, the hand of the good shepherd, because the Father has given us into his hand. But then Jesus also says that we are in the Father's hand and that no one can snatch us or steal us out of either of their hands. So the question is, how can we be in both hands at the same time? And it feels like Jesus answers that question in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. One in the purpose of salvation and security for sure, but also they are, according to the New City Catechism that we've been studying with the kids, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This was my favorite passage to use when I was a camp counselor, uh, when I was in high school and maybe in my first year of college because I had a great illustration. So I thought I'd go back to my camp, camp counselor days, okay? You can use this. All you got to do is find something small. And we would say that this represents you, whoever you are. This, this pick that I found on the stage <laughs> represents you. And the passage says that you are in the hand of Jesus, and he holds you tight, and no one can take you out of that hand. I could have someone come up here and try and open my hand, and you probably couldn't do it. Uh, but maybe you could. Maybe you could peel it out of this one hand. But then he says you're also in the hand of the, the Father, right? And you're held in the Father's hand. And then verse 30, that the, the culmination, he says, I and the Father are one. So let's come to, I'll pick on one of my own kids. Hey, Gwen, come here. So if I'm in the Father's hand and I'm in the Son's hand and they are one, can you pull my hands apart? You notice I didn't call JB, right? <laughs> can you get them apart? Now she might be able to eventually, right? But the illust she's really trying hard. Okay, that's it. That's, that's good. <laughs> but the thought is that I and the Father are one. And, and there's this, this idea of, of being held in the, um, the Father's hand and the Son's hand. I'm reminded that there was my, my great uncle was a, a preacher back in the day, and he used to preach about this. And my dad told me he'd say at this moment, he would say, clasp in the bonds of omnipotence. <laughs> Isn't that a good phrase? Clasped in the bonds of omnipotence. I can hear him. You can't hear him, but I can. And that's exactly what he would say. But here's the beauty of this, is that there's divine security that's found in deep theological truth about the unity of the Father and the Son. If we're God's sheep through faith in Jesus, we have an intimate relationship with him. He gives us eternal life, and there is, as the song says, no power of hell, no scheme of man that can ever pluck us from his hands. Isn't that beautiful? What God has given us in Christ the Messiah. There's such deep comfort in these words for when we're fearful, when we're anxious, when we're overwhelmed. But I think there's also motivation. I think Paul is drawing on similar themes in the book of Colossians, and he uses them as a call to action to believers. Maybe meditate on these verses this week in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Hear these words then as an application of all these blessings, this blessing of, of intimate relationship, eternal life, and divine security. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Doesn't that sound familiar? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, the passage began with the Jewish leaders demanding that Jesus tell them plainly who he was claiming to be. He does not tell them plainly in the way that they wanted him to, but the irony is seen in the fact that their desire to stone him was because they understood exactly what he was saying about who he was. Without telling them plainly, he told them plainly. And they knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah. What were words of comfort to his sheep were words that incited others to murder. When this picking up of stones happens at other points in John's gospel, Jesus, we know, slips away. But now he he stands firm, and he extends this conversation out even further. It would seem because he knows that the end is coming, and so the end of their hope for salvation is coming. Therefore, he continues to plead with them, and he says to them that he's not only the Messiah, but that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He, and as he pushes back against them, he tries to bring them back to the signs that he has done. The, the works that he does, are, he keeps bringing up the works that he has done. He wants them to remember his good works and say with those in, in John 10, 21, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? He wants them to see how crazy it is that they would say he is from Satan when he's doing these wonderful things. But they say, we're not concerned about your good works. We're concerned about the fact that you've blasphemed. How has he blasphemed? They say, because he, a mere man, has made himself God. And aside from the fact that they say he was, quote unquote, a mere man, they showed that they actually totally understand him. Jesus was certainly, was most certainly claiming to be God. From John's first sentence, this gospel has been making the claim that Jesus was and is God, which means that to form a religion around Jesus and then try to say that Jesus is not God is to show that you really haven't listened to anything that he said. Even the Pharisees knew that he was claiming to be God. They understood that. The question isn't whether or not Jesus is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be God. The question is whether or not that is blasphemy. The Pharisees say it's blasphemy. But the sheep of Jesus kneel at his feet with Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. Now, in response to this claim of blasphemy, Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. Uh, And it would seem that his goal is not really to further the discussion about his deity, but it seems like it's to throw the Pharisees off just enough so that they will come back to making a decision about who he truly is based on his words and his works. Uh, in Psalm 82.6, God is speaking to the judges of Israel. He's exposing their sin. And Jesus points out that in the psalm, those who were given the word of God were called gods. Their role as, as leaders in Israel made them the small g gods of Israel in some way. And so Jesus says, if that's okay to say, and it has to be okay because the scriptures are sure and certain they can't be broken, 
then why can't I, one who's consecrated and sent by God, why can't I call myself the son of God? What's going on here? Here's what I think is going on here. I, I think Jesus is inserting just enough scriptural doubt into the Pharisees' arguments to get them to come back to the works and the words of Jesus and decide whether or not they're going to believe in him. It's a gracious move. He wants to throw them off, kil off kilter and reveal that maybe the things that they're so certain about in the teachings of scriptures and the character of the Messiah, that maybe they shouldn't be so certain about them. He's doing this so they will actually look at who he is. As we talk to people about Christ, uh, so often our apologetics and our evangelism get caught up in minutia, words and phrases, and we miss the forest for the trees. And Jesus shows us here that sometimes staring at the trees, and if we stare at trees with people, we neglect to help them see the vast forest of evidence regarding who Jesus is. There are things to wrestle with, small minutia to talk about, but Jesus here seems to be compassionately saying to these men that are holding stones, ready to stone him, forget all of this wrangling over words, guys. Just, just look at my works. Are those from the Father? And if they are, then believe those works. And maybe, maybe as you believe those works, you'll eventually see who I am and you'll believe in me. It's so interesting. He says, he says you don't even have to believe in me. <laughs> you see that in verse 38? Even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Just come to me via the works. Look at the works and then maybe you'll start to believe who I am. We must hold the breathtaking person of Jesus before others knowing that it's his works and it's his words that are divinely compelling, not our arguments. We can follow some rabbit trails, sure, but we need to always find our way back to the highway of who Jesus was and what he did. And so too for our own hearts, I think. You ever get lost in rabbit trails? You ever lose the wonder of this savior who, who did all these things? He's coming, bringing this whole section of signs to a close. Do you ever think about who Christ is and what he's presenting them with? He's the one who, who walked into a wedding and turned 150 gallons of water into wine. <laughs> he, he said to a man, whose son was miles away, he's healed. He told a lame man, he was just sitting there and he said, stand up and walk. And he did. He fed over 5,000 people. He walked on water. He healed a man born blind. He raised a man from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. He said things like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the word made flesh. I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't get lost in the weeds. 
remember these glorious words and amazing works of our Savior. Behold, the beauty of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he offers us life in his name. And they didn't hear him. It says again, they sought to arrest him. They, weren't, they were deterred from stoning him, but they still wanted to arrest him. And again, their desire to arrest him makes it clear that they knew exactly who he was claiming to be. They understood, even though he wasn't speaking plainly. And yet despite their designs, Jesus escapes their grasp. Why? His hour had not yet come, but it was close. At that point, you might think that the, this section would come to an end, but we see that he goes back again across the Jordan, and he goes back to this place where John the Baptist had been baptizing, where he began his ministry. He goes back to the origins. And there's some people there who, who remembered the words of John the Baptist when they saw Jesus come back, and they'd heard all about Jesus. They'd heard about his words and his works, and what did they do? They believed. <laughs> they, they might remind us of the man born blind. Remember his testimony? All I know is I was blind, and now I see. These folks just put one and one together. They didn't overcomplicate things, did they? They remembered what John said. They saw John's words fulfilled in Jesus, and they believed. No arguments, no fighting, no wrangling over words. They believed. That's the crowd we want to be in. <laughs> Those are the folks we want to walk with. And so John says to us, very simply, just listen. Listen to the voice of Jesus because he's the shepherd who offers everlasting life and eternal safety in his fold. He is exactly who he said he is. He's exactly what his works attested him to be. And he's even greater than we can comprehend. And the blessings that he offers to us are eternally ours when we simply trust in him. So take comfort. Take comfort in the good shepherd and follow him as he leads us into the blessings of everlasting life and eternal safety in him. Let's take a moment of silence and I will close this in prayer. Father, we are filled with thanksgiving for Christ. Thank you for sending him to, to reveal you. Lord, he is the exact representation of who you are. He shows us your heart. He shows us your power, your grace, your mercy. Lord, help us to see him for who he is and to, to love him, to walk in his ways, to listen to him. Lord, help us when we get 
caught up in small things that don't really matter, to step back and see the beauty of Christ. Help us as we talk to others, Lord, to do our best to answer questions, but to keep pushing them to say, what are you going to do with this man? What are you going to do with his works? What are you going to do with his words? No one ever spoke like him. No one ever did things like this. Lord, thank you for the the mercy that you've shown us, that you have opened our eyes, Lord, that we are in your flock. It's not of our own doing. It's because of your grace. Thank you that you've given us eternal life. Thank you that no one can ever snatch us out of your hands. Father, fill us with deep gratitude, but also with deep resolve to follow you, to be your sheep, and to know the joy that comes from that. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.